Coming up next on the Dilaparam All-Rounder podcast, the 2005 Ashes. Yes, Freddie, Punter, McGrath, Warren, Lee. It's all cricket today. And to do that, I want to bring on my guest, Dr. Curran Rao. He's a very good friend of mine. He's a great cricketer. He's a great golfer. And more importantly, he's a great doctor, cardiologist. So if you need your heart checked, you go visit Dr. Curran Rao. Over the next few weeks, we'll also be looking at a number of different sports. So I kind of want to do a rugby topic, uh, maybe some state of origin, the English Premier League, the Leicester Premiership, and the Masters 2019. Once I've done a few of these different sports, I want to hear from you. I want to get some feedback from you as to what you like listening to, whether there's some particular sporting moments that you want me to talk about. I'm really enjoying the listener feedback and engagement so far, so keep it coming. It helps me deliver a better product for you. If you like listening to this show, I encourage you to keep listening and keep downloading. My numbers go up when you download more, so you won't. I won't be hating if you're downloading, deleting, and re-downloading. In fact, I love it, so keep doing it. Up next, the 2005 Ashes. I hope you enjoy it. See you soon. Hello and welcome to the Dilapram All-Rounder podcast. It is the 29th of August. We are recording at around 7.15 p.m. And we are talking today about the 2005 Ashes, known probably to many as one of the greatest test cricket series of all time. I'm going to be talking about it with my guest, Karen Rao. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dil. Thanks for having me on and a big hello to all your listeners. I told you we we're going to talk about the 2005 Ashes series. I know cricket is one of your favorite sports, but before I get to that, do you actually remember when we first met? I could be wrong. My memory is often a little bit hazy when we go that many years back, but <laughs> I think it was on a cricket field. And I think ironically, you were filling in for a cricket team that I was in and I wasn't playing. That's right. Uh, Karen was, I think you were the skipper, but we were filling in mm. for your team you're supposed to have 11 people on the field. We had five on the day and somehow we still played the game. Karen came, I think you came in day two, started umpiring for us, but it was a, it was a result that we will forget because we got smashed, but that's where we first met. Yeah. And, um, I think it created a partnership in more ways than one. We ended up batting together and, and opening the batting together for many years to come. So exactly for the ride on me runs, just for <laughs> anyone listening. Um, and Karen, so now, um, obviously, we both play a lot of golf, but we did play cricket together. If you had a choice in another life, if you could choose one sport where you'd specialize and become a professional athlete, which one would it be? I think it's, I think it's hard to forget your first love. So if I had that option, like, you know, someone's gifting out uh, a career in sports, it would probably be cricket. I think a rock star middle order batsman for India is, is something hard to pass. Like in the sort of, would you mirror your game like Virat? You know what, actually I was thinking about this and I'd like to be Ricky Ponting, but for India and not just because of his batting, because he's, he plays off scratch. So when I hang up the boots, I could, you know, hop onto the golf course and, and be a menace there too. Love it. And no context, but who's the goat? Tiger. I think, um, Tiger Woods. I think 
uh, GOAT is an individual accolade or an individual title and maybe, you know, it's controversial, but I think it should go to a player in an individual, in an individual sport. Interesting. So he's the GOAT, he's above Jack Nicholas. he's above Donald Bradman, he's above all these mm. Muhammad Ali. Okay, so I love it. <laughs> okay, so sort of transitioning into cricket, if I said the words or the name Marcus Trescothic, what's the first thing that enters your mind? Uh, look, I think Ashes 2005 is probably the first thing, but a few other things would probably be he was a stalwart for mental health. Uh, you know, he... he He's may, maybe some of the listeners don't know this, but he was very famous for uh, not showing up to an Ashes series in Australia because of the mental health uh, and, and and depression in in touring. So um, that that kind kind of rings a bell. But otherwise, I think he was one of uh, England's finest Test batsmen, uh, opening Test batsmen. But really, Ashes two Ashes two thousand five is what what triggers. Mm, I think. He brought mental health to prominence yeah. in cricket. Nobody actually spoke about it in cricket and nobody appreciated that uh, cricketers could suffer from mental illnesses or, and or depression. People sort of looked down on it because it's, you know, it's a men's cricket sport, a lot of egos at play. So it's a good call that he was a you know, stand-up person mm. for that. I mean, in itself, he had a very successful uh, test cricket career. I think we forget or we overlook how successful he actually was. I mean... England has a history of opening batsmen that, you know, you have Michael Atherton, Alex Stewart, bats, uh, Graham Gooch, all averaged around the 37 to 40 mark. But Marcus averaged around 44 with mm. the bat. He played 70 tests. And I think he's probably one of England's greatest openers, as you called it. Yeah, and I think the names you just mentioned, you know, that he followed, it's funny because a lot of these players were famous not for their batting but for being bunnies of, of Australian <laughs> bowlers. So he was one of the first batsman that actually came out and made a name for himself as a bat. Uh, Atherton, I mean, great commentator, probably a better commentator than batsman, right? So, good writer as well, <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, good cricketing brain, but unfortunately not not so good with the bat. If I can recommend a book, Michael Atherton's autobiography. It's very good. I might give it to you after the show. The tortures of opening opening the batting would be yeah. probably uh, all about. Uh, inspired me not to want to be an opener instead, but I actually turned out to be an opening batsman as well. Um, Current that probably leads us to the topic for today, which is the 2005 Ashes. I know a lot of people have very strong opinions about this series. A lot of people call it some of the, one of the greatest series of all time. Gideon Hay, the famous Australian journalist, he penned a book. He called it Ashes 2005, the greatest test series. Uh, Peter Roebuck also made similar comments about that. And, you know, I just released a podcast where I said the 2001 Border Gavaska series was the greatest test series of all time. But I think this is very close and I, I want to look into it with you. What was going on in 2005? George Bush was the president. Lance Armstrong was winning his, I think, sixth or seventh Tour de France. I had a Nokia 3310 and I was playing Snake. So it was a very different world. Um, I think, you know, having a Nokia was, was the real shining light on how different society was back then. And you and me, we're both in the same year. We were, I think we were both in year nine and we're probably thinking that our next maths test was the most important thing we're ever doing in our life. So it was a very different world back then. And I think the 2005 Ashes, it was the, that year's edition. It was a long-standing cricket rivalry between England and Australia starting in July, so the English summer. And it was an interesting time because Australia had basically held the Ashes for a long time. So throughout the 90s, England has not won a Test Series. 
And furthermore, I think not only did they not win, they didn't even get close. I mean, this is on the on the back of that very famous series back home in Australia, the series before where Nasser Hussain won the toss, put England in, oh, sorry, put Australia in, and Australia pounded about 350 or 400 <laughs> on the first day for not many wickets. So this is an English team which really had just been taking loss after loss after loss. England, in that time, we've got 2005, they're coming off their recent successes under Michael Vaughan. They had just beaten South Africa in South Africa, which was a momentous achievement. They thrashed the West Indies in West Indies and they just beat New Zealand. So we're talking about a team that had a very formidable pace attack and a up and coming batting lineup with some newbies coming in. Um, the Australian team, Karen, it's hard to say. That, I mean, they were their dominant selves. At the end of 2004, they played New Zealand and comfortably beat them and they just demolished Pakistan in Australia. I think the English team had surprised a few coming into the Ashes. They'd picked Ian Bell and Kevin Peterson. Graham Thorpe was retiring at the time. And so you could say both teams were peaking just at the right time. Can we can we touch on KP? I think, look, KP is going to be a central figure that we talk about throughout this, this uh, topic. But I want to show... So KP had a lot of um, spotlight on him. And one of the reasons was... In that South African tour, he didn't play any of the test series. They, there, was a, there was a call for him to play the test. I think Thorpe was still the preferred player. And he played the one-day series. I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but it was a three or five match one-day series. And he scored about two or three hundreds. And this is on his debut series. He's obviously a South African that's gone over, played for England, had those blonde streaks, six foot, you know, many, six foot a lot, broad shoulders, walking at bowlers, hitting fours, hitting sixes and dominating oppositions. So this was kind of a, a change in pace in England. You know, they, they, weren't, they didn't have many batsmen that would dominate attacks. So I think KP had a spotlight on him from the start, and, and that was a little bit of the context of, of potentially why. Bit of basball? Bit of basball before it was called basball, before it, it was cool. Exactly. Um, 2005 saw the Ashes actually being not hosted by nine. Um, SBS surprised many by buying the free-to-air broadcast rights for the series after the nine network knocked it back. Um, they must be regretting their decision now. And that coverage introduced us to Mark Nicholas. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever heard him. And we still had the dulcet tones of Richie Benno and Tony Gregg, Mark Taylor, amongst others. Interestingly, the series started after the one-day series had concluded. There was a lot of one-day matches. They had a NatWest series with England, Bangladesh, Australia, where famously Simons, you know, woke up drunk one day, didn't play that match, and Australia lost to Bangladesh in their first one-day loss that to Bangladesh. Muhammad, that Muhammad Ashraf 100, yeah. I think, will go down in folklore. <laughs> you know, he averages like 19 with the bat Muhammad Ashraf, <laughs> but, but that, he scored some big tons. That 100. And you know that the game after he hit about 70 off 35 balls against England? But anyway, that was, that was a phenomenal knock. Exactly. So he, um, the one-day series, it was a big one-day series. England looked good during the series. They, I think they won the, uh, they won the NatWest mm. Cup, but then they lost in a three-match one-day series to Australia after that. And so that set the scene. You had a lot of, back then, you had a lot of the same Australian test cricketers playing in one-day cricket. So everyone was primed and ready for the, for the Ashes series. Can we, I, yeah. can I add one more thing? So there was, this is very interesting. So do you remember on TV? when Channel 9 or Channel 7 or whoever was covering it from a news point of view, they were showing this bowling machine that England was 
practicing on. And obviously the worn threat was, was a big threat. And they'd come out, you know, normal yellow, the jug bowling machine uh, was thrown out the window and they had this new machine called the Merlin, which is supposedly a, a spin specialist machine. And they'd been showing all these videos of the English batsmen practicing on this new bowling machine to try and counter Warne. So it was meant to be the answer to, 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 to Shane Warne. And it comes into it a little bit later in, in a couple of the test matches in how Strauss played Warne and, and so on and so forth. But I still remember the news coverage about this this fancy <laughs> new machine called Merlin. Well, England has a very unique and interesting history with spin. They, I think they're famous for just making spin bowlers international names. So when Sakhalay Mushtaq came or when he played in first class cricket or when he played against England, everyone said, how do you pick the Dusra? And nobody could pick it. And he became an international superstar basically because England didn't know how to play his Dusra. Morally, similarly. And Warren basically feasted on English batsmen like McGrath. So it's a good point. I didn't know the story about the, the Merlin. Merlin? Merlin, yeah. Yeah, um, but I'm not surprised because England is the place you go. If, if you're a good cricketer, you become a bigger superstar once you play in England. So it, it's a good call. Yeah. Well, England was always all the gear and no idea. But no. <laughs> Well, 2005 saw, maybe saw a, a change to that. And, exactly. And we can go through it. So first test set the scene in some ways and also was a sign of things that maybe weren't to come because the scene was set when Harmison bowled that bouncer to Ponting. Yeah. Um, it sort of set the tone for the series. It said here was an English team that was ready to fight. When they hit Ponting, none of the players actually went up to Ponting and said, are you okay? And metaphorically, you know, Australia was invincible. And finally you had a symbol of they're human. You know, you hit them and you cut them, they bleed. I still remember that that shot of Ponting taking off his helmet and bleeding under his right eye, I think it was. So yeah, I agree, that set the scene. Uh, you know, Australia came out so, I think arrogant is the word. Yeah. They were bundled for 190 in the first innings, but they went at four and a half and over to five and over. They yes. only batted for 40 overs. So yeah. what does that tell you? Where Every batsman's come out, shown no respect for the English and been bundled out in 40 overs, scoring 190 runs. So uh, yeah, that was, I agree with you. I think there were some little snippets where you could see that England were going to fight this series, but it was much of, you know, otherwise it was uh, normal programming as, as, as exactly. expected. They'd bowled Australia out for 190. Harmison had bowled well. That point about Harmison bowling the bouncer, it's ironic because the... The tone setter for the next series in Australia was Harmison bowling the wide first ball of the <laughs> yeah. series. So it's just, it's so contrasting the images of Harmison bouncing Ponting. And then the next series when they lost 5-0, he bowled a double wide that I think went for four. So you had 190, England come out, McGrath is going for his 500th wicket. Um, it's the usual McGrath procession. He uses that Lord's uh, bounce and that Lord's seam movement to the take slope. five, the slope. Yeah. I got a question for you about the slope. Is the slope overrated at Lords? Everyone talks about it. Well, I think I was similar to you. And when I went to Lords, you can, from afar, you can see that the slope is a real thing. Like you, you think that it's something quite subtle, but it's literally like playing on a slope. Like, you know, when you, when, when, right. you, when we, when we golf, the slope makes a huge difference to your shot. Right. But here it, it, it moving the ball up the slope is quite challenging. Whereas moving the ball with the slope, it can get accentuated particularly, obviously, the same movement. So yeah. I think McGrath, I mean, he'd played a lot of tests at Lords, was famous for being able to extract everything out of this Lords slope. And he absolutely feasted on these <laughs> English batsmen. I, I can just remember a procession. He like, did. 
And it's so that first test was a comprehensive win for Australia. The one shining light I would say in that first test was KP. He yeah. batted well in both innings, and it was maybe a sign of things to come that he was this batsman who's making his debut and wasn't going to give up against Australia. He had a very strong friendship with Warren, but this test showed that he was there to stay. Do you know what KP's? I mean. There's one shot that I remember very clearly, which is when he walked at McGrath and slapped him down the ground for a, from a short of length ball, which no one did. Like Tendulkar no. maybe did it in his prime in a one-day game. Yeah. But in test cricket, no one walked at Glenn McGrath at Lords when the team's six for not many, five for not many. And, That's unheard and, of. Unheard of. And, and it kind of represented his, his nickname at the time, which was Fig Jam. I don't know if you've heard of this, which He's is going F, back, F, yeah. F I'm good, just ask me. <laughs> But that was that was I, I knew that he was gonna. You could tell that he was gonna be a a big player in this series. You just had to look at his hair, and that that really showed that, that he was, was a fig jam. jam as you yeah. um, you run the only other batsman I've seen do that was Abdul Razak to Glenn McGraw. We hit five fourth in a one day in two thousand. That's really going back. Um, it's on YouTube, so if anyone wants to watch that, it's Bill Laurie going go ball go, um, in that. But anyway, that's a bit of a sidetrack. The we have the second test. So England's coming. They've lost their first test. Yeah. People are down. I was watching this uh, documentary where they were interviewing Michael Vaughan and a few others. And Simon Jones said that after that first test, Michael Vaughan told the team, forget about this test. We're never talking about it again. The test series starts at Edgebaston. And yes, in hindsight, that worked. But it really did show that this was an English team with a new mentality. They weren't going to hold on to old wounds and they were going to look forward. So you have this second test. It is considered probably to be one of the best tests of all time. Uh, England leveled the series with the two-run victory, one of the narrowest wins in Ashes history. They got lucky from the outset with... <laughs> That's when Michael Vaughan sent someone <laughs> at, at Australia's training camp to push Glenn McGrath over that cricket ball. Yeah, it's the, most, the strangest injury ever... Uh, he got an injury, I think, was it rolling over the cricket ball? Is that like Ganguly's injury when he sees a green track? <laughs> that, that was very similar to Ganguly's injury at Nagpur, I think, third test, 2004. Um, anyway, we're getting a bit nerdy there. Glenn McGrath <laughs> gets injured the morning of the test match. Australia is in a little bit of disarray, um, but they win the toss and they elect a bowl. And a lot of people said that was one of the worst captaincy decisions. Well, I think Shane Warne lost his friendship with Ricky Ponting for a few years over, over that decision. He did. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a negative decision in the sense of, you know, you would have expected Australia to bat. Was it not an arrogant decision, you think? Do you think it was an arrogant decision, losing your star spearhead on the morning of and then still being so confident on a track that was... Edgebaston's famous for, mm. for turning later in the, in the test, so you don't want to be batting last if you can avoid it. Um, and yet he was so confident in his team that he thought that he would run through England and, and win it quickly. It's a good call. And I think they did think that. They thought there was a bit of movement in the air. They could bundle England out day one and the test would be set up for them. But little did they know the English batting lineup really hit some form. And it's interesting because I think that was the first, that first innings had brought a little bit of baseball into it, if we can call that term, because they scored 400 in around 75 overs. And that set the test up. You had Trescothic scoring a 90 and Kevin Peterson, Flintoff all chipping in with runs and it set them up for them. So that test, England batted well. They bowled at um, Australia. They bowled very well against Australia. Um, they got Australia all out for 308. Um, all bowlers took wickets and it set them up because 
Yes, they didn't bat well in their second innings. They had a very strong um, knock from Flintoff who was injured and uh, played a sort of a rear guard innings. And then it set up for that fourth innings, which people regard as one of the most exciting and um, exciting ends to a cricket match. Yeah, and, and I think one thing I wanted to briefly touch on was this became quite a famous dismissal for Matty Hayden. Now, Matty Hayden, whenever he enters a series, is a big fish, right? So he's bank- Australia's banking on him to score runs to score them quickly and to basically demoralize the opponent's opening bowlers, right? But Hoggard had a plan against him. Over or around the wicket, I I think it it wasn't so important, but that short cover. And you remember for two or three years after that, every opposition that Australia played had two, three short covers or that man straight at silly mid-off, so uh, short mid-off. So that that was the start of that. I think he got out there and that was like now Warren is with Broad. Uh, sorry, not Warner, Warner is with Broad. It yes. was kind of that type of um, bunny almost just for the series itself with that short cover. So yeah. that was the start of that, I think. Yeah, that's a, I, that, you're right. They, they brought that out and then everyone started following mm. suit. Um, it's, a good, it's a very good call there. So that fourth innings, I mean, we're probably going to be talking about it when oh. we look at some top five moments, but yeah. it had everything. You, know, you, you had an English team that was very confident and then the Australian team slowly, slowly started batting their way back into it and things started getting nervous when the runs came down. And eventually it finishes with a, you know, a very poignant moment with Benno commentating and the end finishing. We'll, we'll save it for our, I'm assuming yep. it's going to probably be in one of ours, but a great test match. So we go to, it's one all, we go to the third test and it is another cracker of mm. a test match. Um, the third test saw, it was a draw, but it saw very strong performances from Simon Jones and Michael Vaughan and I think Strauss as well. And our very own Ricky Ponting, the batsman that you would like to mimic um, if and when you become a professional cricketer. Um, It was a great test match that had everything. England would probably feel unlucky that they didn't win. I think so. I think um, obviously there was a bit of rain. There was a bit of um, bad light around. England would feel unlucky, but how good was Brett Lee with the bat? I think Brett Lee throughout the series was, I mean, he's been a good batsman his, his whole career, but no more than this series. I think he ended up, we're not talking about the whole series, but he ended ended up averaging more than Damian Martin, more than Adam Gilchrist. Um, and in that last uh, last innings in Edgebaston, he was sensational. And even in this test, he, he was a very strong, um, a very strong kind of, you can't say a tail ender. He was an all-rounder essentially this series. I think he was more, I personally think he was more useful with the bat in this series than he was with the ball. Uh, he's a very interesting test career, Brett Lee. Very successful early on, but this series he did show his um, grit with the bat and his determination. He's a very determined batsman. Um, and so, yeah, completely right. It was a great test match, a very famous ending. I mean, you had punter, rear guard. I think we're going to be looking at it a bit more. It's interesting, the third test, McGrath came back, but then we go to the fourth test where one all and McGrath gets injured again. Uh, this time, I think with an elbow injury, but the fourth test was one which was won by England. The direct correlation with when McGrath plays yeah. and what the outcome is. Well, it's, you know, it's, that's all we can say. You can only look at when McGrath played and when he didn't play. <laughs> um, you, another fantastic test. I mean, it's hard to script this, but each test, we call it fantastic, but it really had different results, but it was exciting in its own way. I think the, the beauty of test cricket, outside of the context which we've kind of covered, is a good game or a good series is where at any point any team could have won. And yes. I think in every test, maybe bar the first, 
there was a point where Australia looked like they might win and there was a point where England looked like they would win. Uh, and I think the fourth test was finally uh, kind of swinging slowly back into England's favour. Finally, the momentum was shifting. It wasn't kind of in the balance. It looked like England was starting to become the better side. They really exerted some dominance in that test. Um, they they showed a lot of metal with the bat. We had Freddie Flintoff. Um, he scored a ton yeah. in that, in that yeah. match. Yeah. Uh, showed how strong he was as a bat and you had Simon Jones bowling very well with the ball. Simon Jones is someone I want to talk about a yep. bit more with you. Um, very interesting, very interesting personality, very interesting cricket history with Simon Jones. But that win took England to 2-1. Australia followed on. Now, how they many did. times can you can you say a team with about four or five invincible, invincibles uh, had to follow on? It's ironic that the follow-on almost won them the game. Uh <laughs> It, it allowed them back into the game because they set England a total that, you know, on that caused a few shivers for the for the English team. I mean, they were chasing 130 and Brett Lee bowled very well in that fourth innings. It was an interesting chase that could have gone either way at some point. And it, was, had- it was King Warren. It was King Warren. I, I was watching this, um, uh, I was watching this uh, kind of recap of the series and, there was an English journalist recounting this fourth innings chase. And he was saying that, you know, he was watching the game at some cafe and Warren was was uh, was bowling so well he couldn't watch, so he left. And he was getting updates from his friend. And his friend was just saying, Warren bowling sensationally well, turning it on a dime, turning square, English look scared. And literally, um, if you look through the highlights, Warren was borderline unplayable on that fourth and fifth day. Like, England survived very barely but I mean I'm sure we'll cover this towards the end but this series even though it didn't go in Australia's favour showed that Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne are two of the greatest bowlers that will ever play the game too right um if you had those two in your team you're pretty much halfway to winning to winning the game regardless of how strong your batting was um good call on Warne so that but that test the final chase we finally saw a little bit of input from King of Spain, King of Pain, Ashley Giles. Um, I think he scored the winning runs in that in that match, uh, and he was basically lauded as being, you know, he was almost being crowned as the man of the match for that for for scoring the winning runs. But it was he came in clutch, and that was his contribution. And he can hand on his heart, he can go to sleep saying, "I won a Test match for look, England." Look, that's a lot from someone who, <laughs> where before the series, people were saying that playing with Giles is like playing with ten men. So the King of Spain did well there. He reminds me of, uh, do you remember Chris Dornor Paris from South <laughs> <laughs> Very similar, very similar cricketers. Um, how will you remember Michael Vaughan as a, as a player? Because do, would you remember him more as a bat or a captain? Yeah, good question. I think my first thoughts are, are probably as a captain because, I mean, I don't have his average off the top of my head, but he was moderate at best. On his best day, he was beautiful to watch. That yeah. cover drive was, I think, one of the best in the game. But he, he, I remember him more as a gritty captain, someone who would do anything to win and yeah. someone that would, uh, you know, he, he kind of bled England. Like he, he bleeded like, you know, English colours. So yeah. he, I remember him more as a captain, but yeah, how about yourself? We, history will remember him as an English captain who won the 2005 yeah. Ashes. That's his crowning achievement. And I say that maybe that 2004, 2005 was his peak period. We do forget that he was actually a great batsman in his time. The series before when they came to Australia, England lost, I think it was 4-1, and Vaughan scored three centuries. 
And I think he won man of the series in a losing effort or he came close to that. And so I think people sometimes overlook his batting. His batting did deteriorate a little bit as a captain, but everyone's batting does. You know, he's a batsman that we sometimes forget, but he was in the mold of like a Gower, very elegant, very stylish, and just wanted to give him a shout out as a, as a batsman. It's, he, he, was, he was great to watch. Mm. We then come to the fifth test. So we've got 2-1, given England ha- were not reten- like were looking to win the series to get the Ashes, they needed to either draw or win the test. And the Oval Test, whilst being a draw and really only one, you know, we really only had three innings that were played. It still was very interesting in its own right because that fifth day, you basically had England and Australia scoring a similar amount of runs in their first innings. But that fifth day had everything because England really needed to ensure that they didn't get all out. Yeah. And I think this is really the test where Kevin Peterson announces himself to the world. I think he scores a swashbuckling 158, which all I remember from that innings is him getting down on one knee and slog sweeping warm. Um, I think five or six times. He had he did it on a, a lot of occasions. It was a dominating knock and it all but kind of sealed the deal for England Yes, and um, almost announced that new era, which he was going to lead as, as their kind of star batsman. Yeah. I mean, he got, a, he got lucky. Uh, I think there were a couple of yeah. drop chances, yeah. a no ball yeah. where he was out and Australia was re- really had their tails up. But every batsman needs a bit of luck sometimes. And he scored, I think it's one of the best regards, sort of 150, I think he scored 150 um, on a day five wicket, ensured that England couldn't lose the test. I have to say during that test, I thought some of the Australian tactics were a little negative. They went off for bad light on days two and three where they could have conceivably played on. And if they wanted to win the test, maybe it made sense that they should have played. But then do you remember they did that initially and then kind of regretted it because then on day four and five, when they had similar issues, there's this really funny moment where uh, it's quite dull and the um, English supporters, everyone has their umbrellas out, kind of acting like it's raining. All the Aussie supporters were topless, like they're on the beach. And the Australian players came out with sunglasses to try and convince the umpires that the light was fine. I mean, 30 seconds later, they went off. Yep. But where was all that, you know, on day one and day two when you wanted to win the test? Exactly. So that test ends in a draw. And for the first time in many years, England won the Ashes. Um, it was on 13 September after that series, the English team, along with the women's Ashes winning counterparts, they had a 90-minute bus tour, top parade in... I think to Trafalgar Square and they were greeted by tens of thousands of fans and and it was probably one of the most, uh, you know, famous celebrations for them. You had Flintoff basically not sleeping for a whole week and enjoying the festivities, Kevin Peterson, Matthew Hoggard. Interestingly, Stephen Harmison was interviewed a decade later and said that he regretted that the English team had the parade that week because Australia was still in the country and it was disrespectful to them. But... What? I don't know why he said that. Um, I think for, for England, not having won the Ashes for so long and for coveting that series, it's probably the most important series for them. It was probably one of the best moments and for them, the greatest series that they've been involved in. I agree. I agree. I think um, that moment, uh, their World Cup, probably their one-day World Cup win. Yes. And um, maybe... The one that they drew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe Stokes's knock in that crazy yes. test. Those three are probably their biggest moments in test history over the last maybe 30 years, 40 years. I'm with you. Um, in terms of media reaction, 
I think almost immediately the immediate criticism was in Australia's Sydney Morning Herald. It took issue with the fact that, you know, Ricky Ponting was outsmarted and outthought by Michael Vaughan. Um, and, you know, he was the side was too old and simply didn't score the runs that they needed to to win. The age of um, in Melbourne criticised the team for opening their big mouths once too often. And you had Dennis Lilly who was particularly scathing, he wrote in for the West Australian, he said that the series was a disaster and that Ponting should have been sacked as captain and replaced by Shane Warne. They had one defender and it was Steve Waugh. He said that it was a very good side, a very experienced side, they'll be disappointed and they'll move on from it. But I think for us, it was the first time that we saw this Australian team really we didn't expect them to lose to England, even though, even though England were coming with a very strong team. You'd never expect a team with McGrath, Warren, Ponting, Hayden to lose. Gilchrist. And, and Gilchrist. And so the, that team losing the Ashes was a very surprising result, which is probably why and what resulted in the, in the reaction that followed. I agree. Like, I think if you look at both sides before the first test was played, each position, one to one, two to two, three to three, if you go through every single position, I think Australia had a superior player. Um, England was a great side and it's probably one of their best sides, but how do you fathom them beating one of the greatest test teams of all time? You know, as you, you, you called some of those players, these guys are all-time greats, not Australian greats, like all-time yep. greats. Now, out of the English, maybe Flintoff, KP, but yeah. other than that, uh, I mean, and Strauss, who ended up being a big, big player, but you don't have all-time greats there, no. really, right? You have players that really just all peak together at the right time. It's an underdog story. Every sporting fan loves an underdog story. And really, I think, I just want to reiterate, it was um, a Goliath and... Um, David and Goliath. David and Goliath moment, really. I think yes. it, it, that, that gets lost when you look back at the series, but it really was a David and Goliath moment. It was a series that we all watched. It was coming on at 7.30 p.m. I think a lot of us <laughs> didn't sleep for a few days trying to watch every single ball. It captivated us. It was a time when test cricket was king. We think it's still king, but we're going to look at some of the top five moments of the series and get into some of the segments and categories. We'll see you soon. Short delivery. Oh, he's got it. What a catch. What a catch. What an unbelievable catch. That is absolutely... He's stunned. He's absolutely stunned. So he should be. He's got to go. All right, welcome back. We're going to look at the top five moments of the Ashes. How do you summarize a, a, a over two-month series in moments? But... Let's look at some of the biggest and best moments that we'll remember. So number one for me is the Edgebaston final wicket. You have Brett Lee on 43 not out, Michael Kasparovics, who's batting, his, I think he was on 20 at the time. The lead was slowly dwindling. And it's just a poignant moment. You, the, the aftermath is Flintoff on his knees trying to console Brett Lee. But you can't get a better moment in Test cricket. That's one that. of the, that, I agree. That photo is, is timeless, you know, like Emma Stoney hitting that six. Like there's yes. all these moments in cricket which, you know, are absolutely timeless. And that photo and that moment, I agree, is number one. It's hard, I agree. We see test cricket, there's so many seesawing moments and it's often hard to pinpoint one to, yeah. to kind of say how the series went and dictate how the series is going to go. But I agree, that edge best and that wicket, if it doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. And, and England might go down three, four, five nil. You, you, you know, You're right. it, it could have been completely different. Australia could have completely run through them. But that Edgebaston victory, I think, gives them belief and, and then they come through on top. I think every single journalist afterwards in every article had that Flintoff photo. 
um, him consoling Brett Lee. It's a, it's a great moment. It was showed, showed true sportsmanship between the players that they were still at the end of the day knew that it meant so much to each team and a great result. And it, we needed that result in order for this, as you said, in order for this series to be competitive. England needed to win that test. And the public, like after that win, I mean, the public was already, is always behind England. The Barmy Army never fails to support England. But yes. I think after that win for the final three tests, there was hope, there was belief, and they'd proven that they can do this. So the whole country, I think, all got together as one. Yes. And, and, and England were a real force at home suddenly. 100%. I, you, I think the third test had people they had to be shooed away from mm. the stadium uh, that that was the level of enthusiasm and excitement coming into that third test because we had a 1-1 um, series okay so that was my number one number two for me you know it's debatable here but i had kp's 158 at the oval for me it was the coming of age for this batsman he had come in in that innings three for 67 and the match was finally in the balance they had they had a six-run lead, I think, at the end of the first innings. And so this was a test match or a test innings that really put Kevin Peterson on the map. Yes, you mentioned that he'd scored runs in ODI cricket, but test cricket is where you show your true medal, your true skill. And he'd shown glimpses of it early on in the series, but this innings put him on the map and really set him up for the next decade. I agree. I think... You know, you, you look back at KP's career and it's it's tragic. Like, I mean, obviously we weren't in the English dressing room. We don't know the culture he was creating or, or whatever Strauss was kind of... The text messages he was yeah, sending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but if you look back at what he's done for the, you know, for English cricket and for the country, this man is a hero. And like, honestly, it started with this, with this test series and particularly with that final test. I mean, he did play a hundred test matches. So he was a stalwart in the mm. team. He had a lot of incidents that it may color people's minds of him as a batsman. But when you look at this Ashes, this, these moments, yes, it was a drawn test, but KP was probably the main reason why England didn't lose that final test. He averaged 52. Now, to put that into perspective, it's his first test series in England where, I mean, maybe the pitches were slightly more batting friendly back then, but England's not an easy place to score runs just in general. And to score 52, I think he scored them at a good clip. Uh, it, it, they're just sensational numbers and also at the right time. Kevin Peterson, he deserves to be there because one of the best innings in a match that they had to win mm. or draw. Three for me, Kaz, it's actually, it's not an innings or a moment, it's actually a moment. It's Simon Jones bowling Michael Clark with a reverse in-swinger. Shouldering was, arms? Yeah, shouldering arms in the third test. This was truly the test series for Simon Jones. He took, I, I recall, six wickets in that innings. Yes, England only drew the test match. They probably should have won. But that moment signaled everything that was going right for England and everything that was going wrong for Australia. You had the, you really saw the tide shifting. I mean, England had won the second test. They came into the third test. They're dominating. And Michael Clark just shouldering arms. I know he's had a bit of a history with shouldering arms. He he did that to <laughs> Franklin in an ODI match. Um, that's really going back time in a World Cup. But it, it, it just signaled everything that was right for England and everything was sort of on the downslope for Australia. And I think, again, as you said, it's a moment because it's symbolic of the whole Test Series. And that was that England outplayed Australia with reverse swing. Uh, yes. And Simon Jones was... I think the spearhead from a reverse swing point of view and his numbers were incredible. Like nothing like his, I mean, I don't know his career numbers off the top of my head, but 
this was his kind of spotlight. This Asher yes. series was probably the best he ever bowled. And we saw, I think, a strike rate of about 30 or 30, 32 or something like that. Something ridiculous. Every six overs is getting a wicket yeah. against that Australian lineup, averaging, I think, 19 or 20 with the ball. And coming in in those middle overs where a batting team's trying to settle in, trying to get into their innings, uh, I agree that he, he was a, a big factor in this series. And I want to I want to talk about Simon Jones when we talk about um, the Don sort of best best performances, peak performances, apex performances. But we have to give him a shout out there in the top moments because he was he was a fantastic bowler. Number four, uh, it's interesting. I still haven't reached Flintoff yet. But yeah, I was gonna. Wonder, I was wondering where F- Freddie's coming in, Sir Freddie. <laughs> Is he Sir? We better be. <laughs> um, for me, number four. It's a, it's an Australian, um, and it's Ponting's rearguard. I had Ponting's 158 um, or 156 to save the test at Old Trafford as a top moment. It was an innings that, yes, in time, may be forgotten because Australia lost the series and Australian cricket fans only care about the series where they win because they've won so many. But it really showed Ponting's medal. He wasn't having the best time. Um, in that series, he was getting out to Flintoff, to to Harmison. He was he was finding it tricky, but that test, that innings, he really showed the world class batsman that he was, and it saved a test for Australia. I've got, I mean, I agree. I think it was an it was an excellent knock on a on a fifth day wicket. But the one issue I have with that innings is he still left number ten and eleven. I think twenty four balls. So yes. he 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 almost. I mean, yes, you go back and you say that Ricky Ponting's a reason why. They drew that day, but they drew that test, but he still left them 24 balls. And I agree with you. I think he was a lot more was expected of Ricky Ponting. Best still, modern, modern, modern number three. Agree, yeah. agree. So he was expected to do great things and it took him three tests to do something great. But yeah, that's the only problem I have with Punter at, at that moment at three is that he, he did leave a little bit for the tail, which they did well. They got through it. Yeah, but- I'm surprised McGrath. And Brett, I mean, Brett Lee batted very well, but yes. the fact that McGrath didn't get out, uh, you know, sign of maturity for him that yeah. he was able to survive that. You're being harsh. I think it's he he, he batted the whole day. He um, did, and to score 156 in a drawn effort, it saved them that that test, and it took them to the fourth test. Yes, McGrath didn't play in that fourth test, but mm. it gave him a chance, and so. I think he deserved it. He yep. deserves a shout out for that. Great knock. I'm going to switch the order because I had someone else um, before this, but I want to mention him because this series is not going to be this series without Flintoff. No. It was a collection of moments in Edge Baston. So he had Flintoff. He scored 73 in the second innings. Yep. Um, it's it's a famous 73 because he got injured halfway through that um, that innings and people, the whole crowd was very worried that he wouldn't be able to bowl and we saw a flint off that then just came out and started hammering the bowling, Australian bowling attack, started hitting sixes galore. And, and then he comes to bowl and it's, I think English journalists will regard that first over from Flintoff as one of the greatest sort of moments or overs bowled by an English bowler. I mean, Flintoff said it was his best over he'd ever bowled. Is this to Ricky Ponting? To Ricky Ponting. Yep. And I think he got Justin Langer. Yeah. So um, he got Langer and then he bowled that over to Ponting where they had a couple of LBW decisions. Every ball they thought, the, the crowd thought something was yes, going to happen. that's right. So, I mean, there's there's not many overs like that in Test cricket. Ishan Sharma, Ricky Ponting rings a bell. Like it was an over where every ball, I agree, looked like he was going to get him out. And people don't do that to Ricky Ponting. 
And you're right, he bowled a couple of uh, in-swingers, hit him, wrapped him on the pads, a couple of close appeals. I think he bowled a no ball, which gave him one more crack. He switched the ball around and he bowled an out-swinger just off fifth stump, leaving Ricky, Ricky Ponting, and he gets the edge. Jones gets it and literally I, I just that moment is is etched as one of the yes. greatest overs that, that kind of caps it off where yeah. he gets him off the last ball um again I, I agree that flintoff is synonymous with the 2005 ashes and i mean just some numbers he averaged 42 or something with the bat yeah and uh 27 or something like that with the ball so that is a superstar um all-rounder performance like people don't do that ben stokes even doesn't do that so it was a sensational series for for freddie um, and I think he carried a lot of England victories on his back. Yeah, and I, I agree. That moment, it just, the whole crowd was behind him. They were happy that there was a no ball bowled. Those LBWs weren't really that close, but it's interesting that the best spells bowled to Pontinger from Flintoff and Ishan Sama. <laughs> just a bit on a, on a side note, because you say that, they're both actually quite similar bowlers. So yes. they both um, kind of angle the ball in uh, and prefer to, to, to kind of use the seam and, and, and attack the stumps, um, both fairly tall. So it wasn't a, a fluke that Ishan Sharma bowled that uh, over to Ricky Ponting years after. I think it no. was an issue. And um, yeah, uh, Freddie did it first and Freddie did it before it was called. And they got out in similar ways. Like mm. I think Sharma yep. got Ponting out, caught Dravid. Yep. Forcing slip. off the back foot, just exactly. off the fifth, sixth stump line. Yeah, so if you if you had a bit of bounce, bit of movement, you, mm. could, you could trouble Ponting. But those are my top fives, Kaz. Mm. Um, have I missed any that you thought, you know, was a, was a real worthy top five moment? Oh, um, one that I would talk about was, was it the fourth? I think it was the fifth test. It was the final test. And it's Punter getting run out by Pratt. Fourth test, yes. Fourth test, I think. Yes. By, yes. Is it Gary Pratt? I don't know. I can't remember his name, but he's a, yeah. he's a subfielder. And <laughs> it, it, it was one of the funniest moments in the Ashes, but it was funny only if you weren't Australian. So <laughs> Ricky Ponting, we've talked about how good he is. <laughs> he, he hits one to, I think, cover. And the whole series, what's been happening is Australia's been getting pretty ticked off because all the English bowlers were coming on, having a bowl, having a, uh, you know, bowling two or three over spells, then going off for a, for a comfort break. And they thought that was not sportsmanlike. They thought that that was not in the spirit of the game. And they'd have two, three, four subs on at any, any given time. And these subs weren't just, you know, um, they weren't like Steve Harmison's. They were like... They weren't Ramesh Powell. <laughs> no, they were Ricky Ponnings. So yeah. like Gary Pratt, I think was his name. Correct me if I'm wrong. But essentially he hits it to short cover or something. Uh, oh no, I think it, I think Clark was batting. Whoever was batting at the other yeah. end hits it to him. And he's going, he's non-striker. He's running to the, the other end and it's a direct hit and he's out by millimeters. So anyone else and he's, and he's home. And you can just see him as he's, he's a little bit hot-headed as he's walking off and he's just swearing at, I think, Duncan Fletcher. Just exactly. giving him absolute crap for, for having this these guys on and, and having their bowlers go off for breaks. He had to apologize yes, for that. Simon Jones was legitimately injured. <laughs> <laughs> he he um he had to apologize afterwards. He it was a very heated moment. The cameras showed him visibly swearing at Duncan Fletcher <laughs> and that English team. I mean, it was a little cheeky from the English team. Historically when you have substitute fielders, you just bring on your twelfth man. The English team were bringing on these, you know, jaunty roads to the to the field. <laughs> They were in the action. The Australians took a risky run and Ponting got out and England won that test. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, was, so, it was a very decisive moment actually because England just got over the line in the fourth innings and Ponting scores more runs. Ponting does what Ponting you know, is expected to do and it's exactly. a different outcome. So that's um, a yeah. that's an honourable mention. Um, 
I've got one, and I want to hear if you've got any others. I've, the one I forgot, and maybe we'll put it as an honorable mention, is Warns 6 of 46. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I mean, this is uh, a little bit more than a moment, but I think Warns performance in this series, just in general, uh, he had 30 something wickets. Let's, he, I want to cover it in best performance. Yeah, if you, yeah. if you think, I think so. I mean, it's always hard to talk about a performance in a losing side, but yes, uh, he, I think it makes it even better. Yeah, I mean, his six of forty six. Mm. Can we say, if if I had to ask you, because that six of forty six, I think included his ball to Strauss, um, Strauss, which uh, bowled him around the legs. Yeah, this ball to Strauss spun more than Gatting, but would you still say the Gatting ball is the ball of the century? The Gatting ball is just visually sensational. Like yeah. uh, dipping in, um, playing down. Gatting did completely fine i mean if anything if you're a critic you say play more forward but really he played it perfectly he did and he takes pitches outside leg takes out off that just doesn't happen how would you have played it if you're about to would you have charged down there <laughs> yeah i, would, I, I, would, have, would, I would have charged <laughs> no i think i would have missed it by my more like it, it was that, that ball is is incredible yeah and strauss ball is pretty magical too i think that turned a mile out of the rough outside off stump i mean how are you supposed to play that it it's spinning outside off. Strauss is trying to pad it, thinking it may not even reach off stump, and then it bowls him on leg stump. Yeah, yeah. That that ball. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Maybe Strauss could have got more forward. He got his you know front pad further yeah. to the pitch of the ball, perhaps. But I mean, that's hitting the pad if anything, anyway. And you're probably uh, yeah. close to an LB. So I mean, that six of forty six. Mm. In uh, Australia didn't win the test, but. It showed it was a second test and Warren was already taking wickets. It showed it was a sign of things to come um, in that series for Warren, but it it had to be, a, it was a very special one. I put it as an honourable mention as a as a top five moment. The only other one Karen I had as an honourable mention was McGrath. I want to give him some credit for the Lord's test. Yeah. Um, he took 500 wickets and he basically showed why at the time he was the world's best bowler. Yeah, I mean, maybe he shouldn't have run his mouth as much, but... Uh, that that if anything cost them because I think Karma had it out for Australia after yeah. he said five nil, but McGrath's McGrath and every test he played he had an impact. Yeah, uh, and England were, were, were lucky he didn't play too. So I always remember fondly, and I remember it fondly now because he's retired. But at the time, before every test series, do you remember he would always come out in some newspaper and say, "This is the batsman he's going to target for <laughs> for that series." And I think there was a lot of articles at the time before the 05 Ashes where McGrath was saying, who is 500th wickets going to be? And that was just a sign of who he was. He, he was a bowler with supreme confidence. He backed his ability. He never bowled quicker than 130, 135 kilometers. But it showed that even if you didn't have pace, if you had line, you were still a scary bowler. Yeah, he was quick enough. He was quick yes. enough. I mean, maybe he's quicker in his younger days. But when we really watched him, I agree, he, he never was... He was never express, no. but he had it on a dime, right? Like he he had it. There was all those stories that he he would practice trying to hit a five cent piece, and that was Glenn McGrath to a T. Let's go to some of the segments and categories. The first one I want to cover is I call it "Would you believe that?" and it's just any interesting statistic that came about, something that might surprise people when they look back and say, "Well, did that really happen in that series?" Mm. And the first one I want to hit you is Trescothic. He had sixty four boundaries. In yeah. that series, wasn't and touted as a boundary hitter by any means, but yeah, sixty-four boundaries. He didn't score a hundred, and he was, I think, the second highest run scorer in that series. And people underestimate how important he was in that series. Marcus Trescothic. completely agree. And to add to that, you know, when I was thinking about unbelievable statistics, it's actually basically to extend what you just said. 
it was that the top three run scorers were all English. Yes. So, I mean, England won. Yeah, you probably expect them to dominate with the bat, but against that Australian batting but bowling lineup, and with yeah. those Australian batsmen, to have the top three all English was very surprising and something no one would have called um, before the start of the series. The next one. Kevin Peterson dropped all his catches. Yes. He dropped about four or five, maybe he did. more. It was, he did. There was this really interesting piece where all these journos started coming out as uh, fielding gurus <laughs> and they were like, KP's too wired, he's too <laughs> hyper, and that's why yeah. he kind of snatches at the ball. And KP was like, just simmer down. Um, I'm all right. But, yeah, you can't say that when you drop five or six in a row. But it was ironic and interesting that he didn't take a catch that whole series. Current look, we did touch upon it, but Australia never lost a test when McGrath played. Mm. And to me, that's poignant. It's uh, reflective of how important he was to that team and in some ways how lucky England got that the two tests that they won were the two tests where McGrath was injured. Yeah, 100% agree. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I think if you look at the McGrath-Warn era, teams tended to do very well when one or or two of them were missing. So what comes to mind, I mean, you talked about the border Gavaskar in 01, Warren wasn't there. And then you you, you also, uh, sorry, no, Warren was there, but yep. Warren wasn't there in, uh, what I meant to say was the 0304 series where yes. India came here. That McGill. Was, McGill. Correct, McGill was there and India did quite well. Yeah. Uh, and McGrath. And McGrath Warren wasn't there either. You had yeah. Brad Williams coming in in the one day series. <laughs> Bracken. And, and Bracken. And yeah. so in, India did really well, but again, it was, you were missing these key players. And yes. um, I, I agree. I think McGrath, I don't know, I wouldn't call this an unbelievable stat only because we both know that McGrath was just sensational. So it's a very believable yeah. stat that they, they did so well when he played. Yeah, it's almost in some yeah. ways not surprising yeah. that yeah. They, they didn't exactly. lose when McGrath played. Um, and the final one I have, it's it's not an unbelievable stat, but it's credit to him. Warren became the um, all-time leading wicket-taker in a Nash series, having taken 172 wickets. I mean, a lot of people would say 172 wickets is good for a test career. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, I think McGill probably had around 172 to 200 test wickets, and Warren had that against one country. So it's a stat that I think it's it's just unbelievable when you think about it. How many wickets he took against England? He averaged 19 and had a strike rate of 37. He's a leg spin bowler. That's yeah. unheard of in England. Where yes, the four, third and fourth day wickets turn, but those are crazy, crazy numbers in a losing cause. How do you lose with <laughs> it, it's it's unbelievable. But yeah, Warren Warren is is a superstar and he absolutely killed those ash. Okay, so hot seat. I had Ponting as um captain and as the as the batsman. I think this series really brought uh made a lot of people question his uh captaincy skill, whether rightly or wrongly. Some I, I still think Ponting's a great skipper and a and a leader of men. He he led by example with his bat and he was a very positive, aggressive skipper. But this was the first time you saw Australia go to England and you know, they really were the second best team. And there were a lot of decisions that Ponting made, which people subsequently questioned. He showed a little bit of his frustrations with that Gary Pratt incident. And I think he just generally was uh, some someone afterwards that a lot of people criticized. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, I, I'm a, I, I was probably Pont, one of Ponting's biggest haters when um, he was playing, but I've grown, and that was that came more out of uh, supporting India and continuously yes. losing to him, but um, but as after he retired, I think I, I my appreciation has developed quite significantly. I I've got a lot of time and a lot of respect for Ricky Ponting. Yeah, and I think that 
Um, you know, Shane Warne never said, apart from that edge baston test, never said a bad word about him, which I think says speaks volumes. He was very critical about every Australian captain and coach and and everyone. And I well, think he hated that, Steve Waugh. Yeah, exactly. And Steve Waugh goes down as one of Australia's greatest captains, right? Exactly. I, I think that Ponting. Yeah, I, I agree that there was suddenly all this spotlight on his captaincy, where before he had an, he just had to rock up and his players would just do the job. Mm. Here he had to think, he had to try and outwit the opposition, and and he he failed. But that that sport, right? I, I think. It wasn't his greatest kind of time as a captain, but that didn't make him a bad captain for me no. in general. I think he still was one of Australia's greatest captains. He had a lot of success. But yes, in this Ashes series, I agree with you that he, he was outsmarted. And that's actually who I put as the player with the most pressure. In my kind of just um, my perspective, I thought it was Michael Vaughan. I think it was, and the reason was uh, it was a home Ashes series. England had all this expectation. And mm. particularly after... You know, I think Ricky Ponting came in before the Test Series and said that, oh, this is England's best chance. This is England's best side. And McGrath was saying 5-0. The whole, all the papers were saying England have a chance. The Ashes are coming home, yes. blah, blah, blah. Michael Vaughan, and especially after Edgebaston, it was one all, and suddenly there's all this hope. I thought Michael Vaughan carried that burden, that pressure really well, and, and he was kind of in the hot seat. Yep. Vaughan, um, yeah, it was a tale of two skippers, and mm. Vaughan got, ultimately got, um, came up trumps. Um I would, I put I had it as a second and it was sort of a very general statement. Australia as a test team. Um, before this, yes, they lost in 01 to India, but it was a miraculous loss. And in India where the conditions are so, so foreign. And they hadn't won mm. for a long time. Yeah. But other than that blip, the Australian test team d- didn't lose. And so this test series really, really put them on the hot seat as a team that maybe was showing cracks that the team wasn't going to be as strong or as impenetrable as they once were. And because it was a test series that they lost fair and square. Yep. It was a five-match test series. You know, the, the more games you play, the more fair the result is, right? Fair the outcome is. Exactly. And they got beaten over five tests and, and, and fair and square. I think they were lucky to only lose 2-1. Yes. And to me, it proves why longer test match series are so important for our game because you need to build into a series. You have all these series now, one, two test series, three test series. If you just had two tests, if we just had Lords and Edgebaston, we don't have a series. And so I get, I understand why smaller nations can't play five tests. I probably wouldn't watch a West Indies versus New Zealand test series nowadays, but it really proved why you need those longer test series to really build into a series. Let's go to the Don. Was this the best performance for any individual or any team? And Skyron, for me, the first person I want to hit in, in great detail, and he deserves it, is Flintoff. 100%. 100%. Flintoff took 24 wickets and scored 402 runs. He Future generations might look at his career figures. And I know I did this where I went on Crick Info and I said, oh, Flintoff's going to be a great player. Look at his test match stats. They're not fantastic. But Flintoff between 04 and 06, you couldn't find a better fast bowler and someone who could change a game with the bat. And this series emphasized all of those skills. I think the best all-rounders in the world walk into the top test sides as a batsman on their own and as a bowler on their own. And Flintoff at his peak for those two or three years could do both. Yes. Um, I think, you know, I, I always compare him to Ben Stokes, say, because he, he's kind of England's similar similar kind of player now. Yeah. But Stokes' bowling is falling away, right? Like Stokes, at them as of right now, Stokes' bowling probably doesn't make it into a front line. But no Flintoff way. was opening the bowling um, or, yeah. or first chain, but usually opening the bowling, bowling over 140 clicks 
And I, this is an, maybe a bit of a controversial opinion, but I think they ruined or cut short his career by making him captain. Um, I mean, Ben I Stokes, agree. I think, has thrived, but Flintoff, I think, didn't thrive. And I think I actually cut his career short and they couldn't get the best out of him for, for a longer period of time. I, I think people should look past the stats when they look at Flintoff because he's a player that shouldn't be judged on stats. He should, he's judged on his moments and, and reputation and reputation. And and I think that he learned how to build an innings. There's a lot of kind of comments yes. that he learned. He, he always had the skill, right? You don't you don't develop that overnight. But he just didn't know how to to build an innings. He was he was just known as this kind of pinch hitter, someone yes. who would finish an ODI innings. But in that Ashes, he he led England out of really difficult situations on on many occasions like exactly. that edge baston for a second innings where you know without flintoff australia's chasing a whole lot less i mean they only needed two runs less yeah and they, they would have gotten over the line so i agree i think this is flintoff's coming of age moment uh it's his peak series um and and he's definitely definitely the don of this series yeah i had one person i i mentioned him to you before but i think we should focus on simon jones mm. So Simon Jones played four tests. Um, he got injured in the second innings or maybe the first innings of Nottingham and couldn't bowl, I think, in the second innings and couldn't play in the fifth test. But he took 18 wickets at an average of 21. You know, He never played test cricket or international cricket after Nottingham. And I think eventually his career will be remembered. He played around 18 tests. His career will be remembered for the injury at the Gabba um, day one of the 2002 Ashes series and then will be remembered for his, you know, his wickets that he took in the third and fourth test. But he's someone I think could have made a huge difference to England had he kept playing in, in cricket, but it's just unfortunate that injuries curtailed uh, what could have been an amazing career. Shane Bond-esque, some may say, but I think he was I there. I actually for, had that. Yeah. Shane Bond, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was there for a good time, not a long time, right? And... I mean, some may argue that maybe if he'd played a lot more tests, he would have been found out. Outside of English conditions, he may have been nullified. Who knows? But the time he played, he was sensational. I think he was just such a different um, different face in the English lineup. Yes. He had that crew cut. He looked like he was from the military. and He looked he, like a model. He, yeah. And I mean, he was fit. He was yes. like um, someone that clearly went to the gym. Yep. And um, he, he was bowling 140, 145, reverse swinging the ball, beautiful, fluid, rhythmic action, just an absolute uh, joy to watch. Uh, and, and that Clark dismissal you touched on earlier was just one of the highlights. Yeah. And so, you know, he played 18 tests, but he'll be remembered for those two tests where he really contributed to England um, winning the Ashes. And he's someone that should be remembered in, you know, as a... It's almost a what could have been for his career, but 18 tests is no laughing laughing matter. He played a lot of tests for England and had, a, I would still say, a very successful career despite his injuries. The final one, we have to touch upon him, the king, Shane Warne. I mean, look, if you take 40 wickets in a test series at around 20, uh, 16 more than the next highest wicket taker, that's just an amazing feat. And we're talking about a bowler that didn't have his compatriot McGrath for two of the tests, but he took the he basically took the mantle on as the, the the captain of the bowling team, and Australia could rely on him to take wickets whenever they needed to. It's it's amazing that they still lost the series with that with Warren taking forty, but this was probably one of his you know crowning achievements in a very illustrious career. I think without Warren they lose four one, and I mean 
context is everything, right? When you're trying to uh, really dive into a performance and Warren, before he came in, there was all this hearsay that he's old, his shoulders tired, he can't spin the ball as much, he can't get through his run up as much. And he put that all to bed in the most magnanimous way. Like you just said his stats, they were, they were phenomenal. He was turning the ball more than ever. We just talked about Strauss's dismissal. Yeah. Uh, And he really was on top of his game. If there were absolutely any doubters, they were gone. And and I think this series put Warney back on the pedestal. Everyone yes. realized that he is the GOAT. And those two years of Stuart McGill were, were a haze <laughs> and should be forgotten. Because he had the one-year banter yeah. with the diuretic pill. Um, and my mum put it in my bag. <laughs> and just before the Ashes series, he had, a, he had actually a few personal issues come about. Yeah. I think his yeah. wife um, separated yes. from him and his personal life was in disarray, but he put all that to the side. Um, he wore this wristband, I think that was given by his daughter, Brooke, yeah. Brooke and bold, you know, he was just amazing. That whole, that five test series. I still and, remember he's, I mean, he's, it's test cricket, but he had the highlights in his hair. He had the flare pants Yeah, and it was, it, it was just <laughs> Shane Warne being Shane Warne. It's uh, yeah. He, he was, he didn't win man of the series, but there's an argument that, if someone ought to have won it in a losing cause, it was Shane Warne. Nobody takes 40 wickets in yeah. a five-test series. It's unheard of nowadays, even for a spin bowler. And if you look at his wickets, you had all his party tricks come out. You had the slider, the flipper, the yes. wrong. And it, he basically got a wicket with every single one of his variations. It was just a masterclass. Not to be a party pooper, but <laughs> if we're looking at, you know, the most disappointing performances, and I want to have a name for it down the track, I... I, you know, in when we play golf, I say trash in a can. I, you know, it might be the most disappointing performance, trash in a can performance. For me, Kaz, it focuses primarily on three Australian batsmen. And I think this is why they lost the series. First, I had Simon Kadich. Okay. I, yeah, okay. Kadich played five tests, all five, and he averaged 27 with the bat. He batted in the middle order. It was. I mean, if your middle order is not performing and if your middle order batsman is, you know, didn't score 100 that whole series, you're in trouble. Kadich just didn't, wasn't up to the muster. No, no, that, that's not good enough. I agree. Uh, I, I didn't have him as probably the most disappointing performance. Uh, Adam Gilchrist. Yep. And Damien Martin was a close second for me. Yes. But, I mean, they all had, a, had really poor series. I mean, Ian Bell averaged 17, by the way, but England won, so who cares? Yeah, who cares? Um, <laughs> Gilly has come in as... The, the superstar wicketkeeper, right? The greatest of all time, the, the best wicketkeeper that ever played test cricket and the man that could save Australia from any situation. Well, no, he couldn't because he averaged 22 yeah. and he got found out uh, around the wicket. He nicked off, he, he, he got bowled, he, he just got absolutely found out. And Damien Martin, again, coming in at four where you need you need kind of your best batsman scoring lots of runs. Agree. Average 19, so yeah. 19.7. So, I mean, Martin, you could argue, was probably in the kind of end part of his career. Gilly, not really. Like, Gilly no. was supposedly uh, kind of at his peak but just didn't perform. Current, if I asked you, we're 40 years' time, both of us still playing golf, um, enjoying our golf, our handicaps. I hope my handicap comes handi- down. Handicap's gotten higher because, you know, we're getting older. We can't drive the ball as far. Would you still remember this series? I'm going to say yes, but with a caveat. Test cricket has to survive until then. I mean, we're both mm. absolute purists and, and love the game, but will test cricket survive 40 years? I, I pray and hope so. Yeah. But if it does, then yes, I think this test series survives. 
uh, sorry, this test, yeah, this, this test series lives on in our memory. And I think the reason is from an England perspective, it is a fundamental point in time where afterwards they became competitors in test cricket. Uh, I think before that, I mean, yes, you had individual stars, but England as a test playing nation, maybe apart from home against weak playing nations, was never a strong team. West Indies went and just beat on them. Australia <laughs> went and, you know, thrashed them. But after 2005, you had to go and really win a test series from England. And that's continuing on to today, right? They won the World Cup, uh, the last World Cup, uh, one day World Cup, that Basball is taking cricket by storm. Yes. So I think all of that, you know, every team has like a, uh, a fire or a, or, a, or a kind of catalyst to, to change. And I think for, for England, after 2005, they became a fourth in test cricket. I, I agree with you. I would probably remember it in 40 years, but it is also based on the fact that test cricket needs to survive up until then. For me personally, it's not the best series that I ever saw. Um, I'm still putting 01, a shorter series ahead of it, but that's not to say this, was an, this wasn't an amazing series to cover with you. And I actually really enjoyed covering with you and your insight. Uh, thank you, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll remember what I was doing. It was, it was a kind of moment for, for me where, you know, what were you doing that time uh, England beat Australia in the, in the 2005 Ashes? What a series and, and what a privilege to cover it. That's it for the show this week. Thanks again to my guest, Karen Rao. We'll be hearing a lot more from him as we keep producing more and more episodes. Uh, next week's show is going to be a good one. We're going to be looking at golf, state of origin coming up too, and the English Premier League. So lots of different sports and I hope you keep listening and keep downloading. Hope you all have a great week and I will see you same time next week. See you soon.